0: And I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 3? And let me just say this, it's been a while since we've studied Romans. Uh, thank you, it's good to be back. Uh, first of all, we had our week of fasting and prayer, where we uh, didn't teach on Wednesday, we prayed. And then I had some medical issues, uh, pinched nerve, and still dealing with that, and other things that kept me sidelined. And then Cindy and I went to... Uh, our first pastors and wives conference, uh, Calvary Conference in seven years out in California. And uh, so I checked the date the last time we were in Romans. It's been eight weeks. Oh, wow. Eight weeks. We're going to start over again. Turn to. No, no, we're not going to do that, but uh, just bear with me just a little bit. Uh, take a little time to review and get up to speed as to where we are in our study of this incredible book. Uh, As we uh, have said in the past, we are currently in the first section of Paul's epistle to the Romans, uh, which is the most comprehensive uh, treatise on the gospel of Jesus Christ you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. Paul tells us his theme uh, right up front in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we have said repeatedly, uh, in this first section, which we find ourselves in, it runs from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, a section referred to as condemnation. Why? Well, in it, Paul is presenting his argument that the whole world, apart from Jesus Christ, is lost in sin, separated from God, and condemned to hell. Now, with the precision of a brilliant prosecuting attorney, Paul sets out, To systematically prove his case by first addressing the unrighteous heathen that's in chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 he then moves on to the self-righteous hypocrite the moralist he does that in chapter 2 verses 1 to 16 and then finally finishes up with the ultra-religious hebrew or the religionist in chapter 2 verses 17 to 29 so the the heathen The hypocrite and the Hebrew. All of these people believe they were, well, the first group doesn't care. Uh, You know, the pagan, they don't care about righteousness. They just want to satisfy whatever bodily appetites they have. Uh, But the moralists, those people think they're good people. They're under a faulty assumption. And then you have the ultra-religious Hebrews, uh, the religionists, as we have looked at. Now As we've already seen, the Jews, and we're focusing now on that third group, because that's what Paul does, the Hebrews, the the Jews, those that are ultra-Orthodox, very religious. But as we've already seen, the Jews based their righteousness, salvation, and security on three primary principles or grounds. First of all, their heritage, that they were descendants of Abraham. Secondly, that God had given them his law. And then finally... They were circumcised, and um, this brought them in their minds into, well, it did bring them into the covenant God made with Israel, and they believe further exempted, exempted them from the judgment God was going to bring on the Gentile world someday. So it set them apart. It made them different, special. Exempt from judgment. These three things gave the Jews a tremendous feeling of security and safety from God's judgment. We've talked about that. We're reviewing a little bit. And so, guys, in this section, Paul sets out to systematically destroy this false security, which the Jews had wrapped themselves in. And he does it by peeling off layer after layer of false righteousness and false security. He does that in chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. And uh, he did this until his fellow Jews were left pretty much naked before God, stripped of any self-righteousness, demonstrating that they were no different than the Gentiles when it came to the judgment of God. All are under the condemnation of God. It doesn't matter if you're a pagan. Well, that's easy. Yeah, they definitely are. Uh, the other two groups would definitely say, yeah, the heathens, the pagans, they deserve to be judged. But not me. I'm moral. I'm a good person. You too, Paul says, because you're pointing fingers at everybody else like the pagans and you're just as guilty. Well, the Orthodox Jews would say, well, yeah." Those two groups, they deserve to be judged, but certainly not us. And then Paul focuses the light onto them and says, Look, you're no better. In some ways, you're even worse. You have the truth, yet you're not living it. At least the other two groups, they didn't—they don't have the truth. Uh, but you do. You have God's word. We're going to talk about this. And so he just really shines the light of examination on them. And uh, he did this until his fellow Jews were left naked before God, stripped of any self-righteousness, demonstrating that they you know, were no different than the Gentiles when it came to God's judgment. All are under the curse, as he would say. Now, he does that with this third group, the Jews. Remember, Paul was, or he was still a Jew, but he was an Orthodox Jew who was zealous for the law at one point, and he's going to tell us about his journey from being zealous for the law to coming to the conclusion that the law not only couldn't save him, it had given him a false sense of security. And so now he's on a campaign to, to tell his Jewish brethren. He, he's going to say in chapter 10, my heart is for my Jewish brethren. If it were possible, I would instead be cursed that they could be saved. I mean, that's a man who was filled with the Spirit. So he has a zeal for his people. But he wants to, before he can give them the truth, the good news, he's got to first give them the bad news, right? The bad news, that they are lost and condemned. So he does this by showing them, first of all, that their heritage can't save them, chapter 2, verses 70 to 20, that, secondly, that having the law can't save them, verses 21 to 24, And number three, that circumcision won't save them either. Chapter 2, verses 25 to 29. That pretty much closes out chapter 2. Now, Paul knew that this would immediately lead to a series of questions and objections from his Jewish readers. And he anticipates these questions and verbalizes them in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3. And So we're going to get into that now. Where he says in verse 1, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? And the idea is this, he's anticipating his readers were thinking along these lines. If all you have said is true, Paul, and and that would be our chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. They didn't have, Paul didn't write in chapters and verses, obviously, he just wrote a letter. But uh, he reasoned that they were thinking, If all you have said is true, and Jews are no better than Gentiles, since all are guilty of violating God's laws, if our Jewish heritage, our knowing and teaching the Mosaic law, and our following Jewish rituals such as circumcision, all does not make a Jew righteous before God, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Paul's answer, verse 2, Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Paul is saying, yeah, being a Jew has many special privileges and blessings attached to it, not the least of which is that that to them God entrusted the oracles of God. In other words, the Old Testament scriptures were given to the Jews by God for them to listen, protect, copy, teach, and preserved for future generations that's what verse 2 is talking about one author commented he said and i quote they were people of special privilege god had revealed his word to them we in the new covenant are people of special privilege as well and that god has given us his word his new testament truth tonight we are here to study the word of god uh, and that is a tremendous advantage to have the word of god an advantage only if you keep the word of God and live by the word of God. But if you don't keep the word of God, if you don't live by the word, then having the word itself is not an advantage. It can actually work in reverse and be a liability. In other words, a basis for judgment. If you have the truth and not living it, you can't plead ignorance, right? We've talked about that. In reality, the author says, it is more of a responsibility to have God's word than a blessing. In other words, you have a greater responsibility knowing the will of God than a person who has never known the will of God who hasn't got the word of God, end quote. But Paul says, or what profit is circumcision? That's a question that his Jewish audience would come up with because if being circumcised doesn't make you righteous, doesn't give you a special in with God, what's the point? Well, guys, circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, that's a very important covenant. Turn to Genesis chapter 17. going to look at the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 17, and let's read verses 1 and 2, first of all. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make a covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Jump down to verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your, and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, As an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, uh, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And so, guys, circumcision brought the Jews into this special relationship with God where they were now, listen, officially the covenant people of God, which contained, yes, many blessings, but also carried with it many responsibilities as well. Paul goes on in this section. But how have the people of Israel responded? to this tremendous privilege to be the covenant people of God for the most part they have demonstrated an appalling lack of faith which guys led to another question question number 2 verse 3 for what if some did not believe will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect and so Paul anticipates that many Jews at this point will be thinking that since the Jews, as a group now, are the covenant people of God, does that mean that God deals with them as a group and not as individuals? A few weeks ago we talked about this, how that, I'm not saying all the Jews, but many Jews believed in a national salvation. And if you believe in a national salvation, I would imagine you also have to believe in a, natural, in a, a national condemnation hell a lot of jews believe that because they were jews they were saved but there were a lot of jews i'm no doubt that were confused we're the covenant people of god as a group but does that mean we all have to move in the same direction what if some don't move in a direction towards god will god hold that against the whole group granted that not all jews have believed but does that mean that God will go back on his promises to bring the Messiah to rescue the Jewish people from Gentile dominion. They were under Roman dominion at this time. Uh, That God will no longer bring Messiah to rescue uh, the Jewish people from Gentile dominion and oppression and establish his kingdom. I mean, after all, he did choose Israel as his people and made definite covenants with them, promises, uh, one of those being the promise of the kingdom, can the unbelief of some negate God's promises to all? That's what they were thinking. Paul's answer, certainly not. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified, you God, may be justified in your words and may be overcome when you are judge in other words when sinners judge you can you imagine man sitting in judgment of god happens all the time but lord even though sinners might judge you as unrighteous you're going to be vindicated you're going to prove yourself righteous and and that's the idea that paul is bringing up look this is interesting is god going to cast away his people because some didn't believe certainly not indeed indeed Let God be true, but every man a liar. Guys, that's interesting. In that, many Reformed and Calvinist groups, and others no doubt, believe that because the Jewish people rejected Jesus as their Messiah, that they have forfeited the promises that God gave to them through Abraham, and that the church has now replaced the Jewish people as the covenant people of God, And that all the promises of God have passed from Israel to the Christian church. It's called replacement theology. And we talked about it a few weeks ago. Paul's response is a terse, let God be true, but every man a liar. Uh, Let's finish looking at Paul's line of thinking here in these verses. And then I want to look briefly at the idea, very important idea. I want to look briefly at the idea that Israel forfeited the promises of God through their unbelief and rejection of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. So let's finish looking at what Paul has in mind here. Then I want to get off into a little detour, okay, which is really not that much of a detour. He brings it up right here. He knows that his Jewish audience, some of them are thinking this because some don't believe. Does that mean that we all forfeit the promises of God? Because we're a group. We're the covenant people of God, right? Does that mean that Messiah is not coming? Kingdom is not going to happen, and so on and so forth. Let's read verses 3 and 4 again. For what if some did not believe? What if some Jews didn't believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. In other words, he's saying, certainly not. Whenever there is a question whether God or man is right, guess what? We must always take God's side. We must always take the side of God that he is always right in all that he says and does. Even if we don't understand it or even if we disagree with, disagree with it, we must assume that God is right in all that he does. Look, let me stop here if you don't have that as your fallback position the devil is going to beat you like a piñata from one end to the other if your fallback position is god i don't understand this i don't understand what you're doing here my pastor used to say when you don't understand what god is doing fall back and what you do know about god that he's almighty he's all loving he's all wise that you know what, even though we can't comprehend at the moment what he's up to, what he's doing, we know he's right. We, we know he's right. I, I, that's my fallback position. I don't question the goodness of God. I never question the wisdom of God. Lord, I don't get it, but my peanut brain doesn't get a lot when it comes to you, an almighty, infinite being. So Lord, I'm going to do the best I can And in time, maybe you'll reveal to me what you are doing, and it'll make sense. If not, now in heaven someday. But guys, whenever we come to a situation that we don't understand, we must assume that God is right, and every man who disagrees is a liar. They may not be an active liar knowing they're lying, but what Paul is saying is at very least, as we would say today, they're a purveyor of misinformation there's a lot of folks that think they have the truth they're not trying to lie they really think they have the truth and so they present it to people again thinking it is the truth but they're disseminating misinformation lies they don't even realize right in his rebuttal paul quotes david in psalm 51 verse 4 why don't you turn there psalm 51 verse 4 written by david Where he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. He's talking about his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, Psalm 51 is when David finally repents. After he's been out of fellowship with God for a year, you can read the whole psalm. But he's confessing his sin. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. When David says against you and you only have I sinned, what he does for us is to tell us that all sin ultimately is against God. See, there are people that would say, when you talk about how God's going to judge them for what they've done to this person or that, or how they've lived their life, they're going to shoot back. Why is God going to judge me? What did I ever do to him? I didn't do anything to God. I've done this to this person, that to that person. What David is acknowledging is that every sin we commit is a sin against God because He is the holy, righteous Creator. This is His universe. He orchestrated everything. Everything is running under His control and authority, right? And when something steps outside His will, it's sin. And that's against Him as the sovereign King and ruler of the entire universe. And that's what David's acknowledging. Lord, you know, He could have said, Well, God, I sinned against. Bathsheba, I knew better. She was one of my subjects. I'm her king. Then I had her husband murdered. I sinned against Uriah and his family. He doesn't say that even though he did do those things. He goes right to the heart of the issue. Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. And by the way, when David ends that verse by saying that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge what he is saying is that look god knows the heart god knows every sin what hebrews uh, what 4:13 uh, that every one of us that, that god um, knows every thought and action indeed and they're all naked in his eyes the one to whom we must someday give an account look god never first of all punishes the righteous with the wicked god never judges the righteous And that's the idea here. And if people want to find fault with God because he's punishing sinners, well, that's on them. But God has a right to punish sinners. And the very fact that he doesn't constantly punish sinners every time they sin is a testimony to his goodness and grace. That he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He gives people time. He doesn't just rush you with judgment the first time they mess up. But if he finally has to judge, if they live their whole life and die in their sins and not repent, when they stand before God, they will be judged and God will be vindicated because everyone is going to know that this person had an opportunity to be saved. God was offering them salvation through Jesus Christ, but they rejected it. So they have nobody to blame but themselves. God is not the bad guy. Uh, You know, God is the the good God looking to save lost sinners and rebels. Now, whether or not they choose to be saved and accept Christ, that's on them. But as Peter said in 2 Peter 2, verse 9, that God does not punish the righteous with the wicked. So much so that he's going to evacuate his people off of this planet, it's called the rapture, before he starts pouring his judgment out. Because he won't punish the righteous with the wicked. But once again, guys, looking at the question that many Jews would no doubt be wrestling with in the light of Paul's comments in this section of Romans, again, verse 3, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God, the promises of God, without effect? Guys, look, God's promises don't require us to believe them for them to be true. And that really is the issue he was getting at is if we have a part in this. We can accept the truth or reject the truth, but the truth is still the truth whether we believe it or not, right? Um, I think of Pilate. When Jesus stood before him the morning of his crucifixion, and, and Pilate was interrogating him. Are you a king? My kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would fight, and so on. And Pilate's interrogating him. He said, well, why were you born? I was born to give testimony to the truth. And Pilate sarcastically shot back, what is truth, and walked away. Because in that culture, every philosopher had truth. Every philosopher, there was many of them back then, Greek philosophers and so on, they all had a little corner on the truth, and only them. It got to the point where there was so much quote-unquote truth floating around, nobody knew what truth was anymore. And Pilate just sarcastically, but in a exasperated way, says, yeah, what is truth? I've given up ever trying to know what truth is. Well, it works in reverse too. We are living in a time when there's so many lies, you don't even know what the truth is. If I didn't have God's word, the only source of undeniable absolute truth in this fallen dark lie-filled world i i would say like pilot what is truth I, I don't even know there's so there, there's so many things going on right now that you know that if if you didn't have a source of pure errorless truth you would have no hope of ever knowing truth that's why it becomes more important now than ever that we share with people they're hopeless they don't know what to believe we have the truth that can set them free and save them forever We have to know it. We have to believe it ourselves. I I know we do, but in a passionate way, and then share it. But look, God's promises don't require us to believe them for them to be true. One commentator had this to say, he said, and I quote, The Jews failed. Doesn't that mean that God failed? No. God's promise to send Israel the Redeemer slash Messiah was not defeated by their willful disobedience and rejection." All his promises for the future of the nation will be fulfilled to his glory in spite of their unbelief. (laughs) Now, my friend, you may not like that, but I personally thank God that his promises to me do not depend on my faithfulness. If it had depended on me, I would have been lost long ago. Thank God for his faithfulness. He goes on. If I quote something God has said in his word, but don't believe it, Does that make it then not so? If I say, I don't believe that two plus two equals four, and you give me two apples and then two more apples and I count them, but I say, I don't believe it. Does that mean that two plus two doesn't equal four because I don't believe it? Of course not. It only proves that I'm a fool. Well, so the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I don't believe in God. Does that mean that God doesn't exist because he doesn't believe in God? Of course not. If I say, I don't believe this is the word of God, does that mean that this isn't the Bible, isn't the word of God? Of course not. And so because some do not believe, does that make the faithfulness of God of no effect? Of course not. It doesn't alter the fact at all. If all mankind were to agree that God has been unfaithful to his promises, it would only prove that all are liars and God is true, end quote. In other words, guys, we are living under a system, a system God has created, where people don't get to vote on truth. God has established truth. The majority doesn't determine what is right or wrong. I've heard people over the years who have said when A majority of people claim that something is true. Maybe you have heard this too. Well, can the majority be wrong? Everybody believes it. If that many people believe it, certainly it's got to be right. Can the majority be wrong, folks? It's been my experience that the majority is seldom right. And that is because the fallen heart of man most always leans in the direction of sin, in the direction that is opposite of what God has said. And if the actions of a person's life are built on Satan's lies instead of God's truth, guess what? That person's life will be characterized by confusion and perversion because it's being governed and controlled by lies, even though they might believe it's really the truth. And this, guys, is what Paul and David, Psalm 51, are basically saying. If you're going to believe someone, you better believe God rather than man because God is always right and always speaks truth. He's the only one you can trust who never lies. God can't lie, the Bible says. One author said it well. He said in my quote, Now what he is saying here is that God is justified in what he has said. Men oftentimes challenge what God has said about heaven, what God has said about hell, what God has said about the judgment of sinners. And many times people challenge the justice or the fairness of God. You hear it all the time. How could a God of love allow a child to be born without an arm, with such a physical handicap? Why would a God of love dot, 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 you finish the thought, you've heard all this before. And he says, you know, man's always challenging the fairness and justice of God. How could a God of love, right? That's a challenge against God himself. He said, there are so many factors that we don't take into consideration when we bring up these kinds of issues. It's interesting Uh, that we want to blame God for every calamity. Even hurricanes are called acts of God. Things that are destructive, we we say, well, God did it. And we blame God falsely. We are living in a world that is in rebellion against God. We are living in a world that is suffering the consequences of that rebellion. Prior to the flood, there were no hurricanes. There were no violent types of tornadoes that were destructive. Calamity is the result of of man's sin, and is not God's fault. And yet people still want to blame God for the consequences of their own rebellion. And so he is speaking of that here in verse 4 of Romans 3. That even if a person charges God with wrong, God is still right. I have a hard time understanding the mindset of a man who would challenge God, or who would judge God, who am I to challenge or judge God? Who am I to challenge the justice of God or the fairness of God? And yet we find people doing that all the time. But know this, God is right and will prevail on the day of judgment, end quote. Now, guys, before we move on to the next question that Paul anticipates his readers uh, are wrestling with, let's take a moment to look at the idea that the Jews could forfeit the promises, in other words, the covenant, God made with Abraham and his children through the rejection of the Messiah. As I just said a moment ago, there are many Christians and churches that believe that the Jews have forfeited this covenant. That when they rejected Jesus, uh, they ceased being the people of God. All the promises of God to them were now broken, null and void. Because they didn't uphold their part of the covenant which was to believe God, receive Jesus uh, as their Messiah, and so on. And so when they rejected Jesus, they broke the covenant, and then God disfellowshipped himself from them, and they were now uh, no longer the people of God, and so on. This is a very uh, common, believe it or not, a very common belief in church circles. But to understand this, well, from our standpoint, to understand how wrong it is, We need to go back to Genesis 15, to the place in Scripture where this covenant was first established by God with Abraham, back then called Abram, back then called Abram. So turn to Genesis 15, and I want to start with verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Eliezer was a servant born in Abraham's house. Abraham had no children of his own. All right. We know that. And so he's bemoaning that. He's saying, Lord, you, you, you want to prosper me? Great. But who am I going to give it to when I die? I don't have any children of my own. Everything's going to pass on to my eldest servant. Who was born in my house, but is not my own blood. It was bothered, Abram. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. He said to him, So shall your descendants be. Verse 6, repeated three times, in the new testament the first time in romans chapter 4 which we'll see in a few weeks verse 6 and he believed in the lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness we'll have a lot more to say about that in chapter 4. then he said to him verse 7 i am the lord who brought you out of the earth of the chaldees that's modern day iraq to give you this land to inherit canaan and he said lord god How shall I know that I will inherit it? Because Abraham in his life didn't inherit any land. God said, everywhere the sole of your foot touches, I have given it to you, to your descendants. And he's saying, well, okay, but how will I know, all right, if it really is mine that I can give it to my descendants? Verse 9, so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Verse 17. And it came to pass, when the sun went down, and it was dark, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those animal pieces. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Canaanites, the Kenites, Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Termites, All the other mites of the land um, and everything else I'm going to give to you. Uh, Guys, part of the covenant God made with Abram, we call it the Abrahamic covenant, obviously, was that God would give him, first of all, a people. You have to understand this, okay? The first part of the covenant that God made with Abraham was that God promised to give him a people. Turn back to chapter 12. Genesis 12, when God first calls Abram, verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Chapter 13, verse 16, And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. In other words, they're going to be innumerable, right? So, first part of the covenant, God promised to give Abraham a people, a family, descendants. Secondly, that God would give Abraham and his descendants a land. This is very important in the day we're living. That's how I wanted to touch on this, okay? Secondly, that God would give Abram and his descendants a land. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Now he's come to Canaan. He's made the journey. To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Genesis 13, verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. Verse 17, arise, walk the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. So that was earlier. Now in chapter 15, God is reaffirming his promise to Abram concerning the land that he was giving him. This is the land of that he was promising Abraham and his descendants. We call it the promised land, right? Um, it's the land of Canaan. Today, many call it Palestine. That's wrong. That's what the Romans named it when they drove the Jews out of that land in 135 A.D. and uh, renamed it Syria-Palestina after uh, the Jews' uh, perennial enemies, the, um, uh, the Philistines. In fact, many commentators, I'm reading Christian commentators are calling it Palestine. It just irritates me. Don't call it Palestine. Call it Israel. Because that's what God called it. He eventually called it the land of Israel. But verse 15, verses 7 to 10, God is reaffirming now his promise to Abram concerning the land. Then he said to him, I am the Lord. Who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit? And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, three-year-old female goat, three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. God had already made a verbal promise to Abram to give him and his descendants the land of Canaan. But now he enters into an official legal covenant or contract with him. The word covenant comes from a Hebrew word that means to cut, to cut, which meant it was a covenant of blood. We would call it a blood covenant. The idea was that once the animal, the animal or the animals were killed and then cut in two to ratify the covenant both parties two people entering into a covenant and they would take an animal or animals kill them cut them in half set them on either side of the road or the path and then they would both walk through the animal parts which would ratify the covenant that's how they did it back then it was a serious commitment to say the least which brought with it a self-imposed curse. Should either of the covenanting parties break their part of the covenant, or break their pledge or their promise to uphold their part of the covenant, in essence, they were saying, if I break my word, may I become like this severed animal. All right, well, you know, make, make you think twice. It's a very visual thing. God's into those visual things, right? That communicates some very important truths. Uh, verse 11, so they do this, right? They, Abraham kills the animals, cuts them in two, lays them on either side of the path of the road. Verse 11, and when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. A lot of symbolism here. In scripture, vultures, which are birds that thrive on death, are often used to represent Satan and his demons, who also thrive on death, the death of human beings. I believe that the vultures that tried to devour the animals before the covenant could be ratified represent the attacks of the enemy against the covenant God made with Abram and the children of Israel to keep them from possessing the land he had promised to them. Guys, we see these attacks going on even to the present day. We see it in Israel as we speak. And in this country all over, Universities everywhere. Where you got young people protesting that Israel is occupying the Palestinians' land. That is so ignorant, they don't even know what they're talking about. But we see these attacks even going on today. That Israel is occupying Palestinian land. And that the promises that God made to Abram and his descendants were made void when the Jews rejected Jesus' And had him crucified, that Israel at that time forfeited the promises that God made to Abraham because they were unfaithful. But folks, that was and is impossible, as we're going to see in a moment. They couldn't forfeit the promises of God. It was impossible. Why do I say that? I'll show you in a minute. Uh, Verse 12 of Genesis 15. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. The Hebrew word for sleep, guys, is the same word used for the sleep that God put Adam into when he took from his side a rib or some DNA from which he made him a partner, a bride, Eve, at which time the marriage covenant became possible. One person can't marry themselves. You need two. Uh, No more than two. Today people want to have three, five, ten. We're living in goofy times. But uh, interesting, the same sleep that God used on uh, Adam to bring about one very important covenant, God used that same sleep on Abraham to bring about another very important covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. So here the Lord causes Abram to fall into a deep sleep. Look at verses 17 to 21. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cabanites, Hittites, Perizzites, the Repha- Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Gergesites, and the Jebusites. So all their land. Okay. Guys, the smoking oven and the burning torch represented the presence of God. We call it the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory. You don't have to turn to this, but I'll read it to you. Exodus 13, verses 20 to 22. So they took their journey from Sukkoth and camped at Etham uh, at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud, a smoke, pillar of smoke, To lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light uh, so as to go by day. And so this is how he led them both by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So here we see clearly that God uh, manifested himself as a pillar of cloud by day, a smoky pillar by day and a pillar of fire by night. That was his presence, the Shekinah glory. Getting back to Genesis, though, as we're looking in chapter 15, the important thing to understand is that verse 18 tells us. Now, you miss this, you miss everything. Verse 18 tells us that God, that God made a covenant with Abram. Not that God and Abram made a covenant with each other. It was a unilateral covenant. What's a unilateral covenant? A one-party covenant covenant that's why it's unilateral uni one a one-party covenant which meant it was unconditional an unconditional covenant that god made with abram as opposed to a bilateral covenant like the one god made with moses and the children of israel from the top of sinai that was a bilateral covenant guys if you obey me i will bless you you have a part and i have a part if you do your part, if you fill your part of the covenant, I will fulfill my part of the covenant, and I will bless you. That was a bilateral covenant. If if the people didn't fulfill their part to obey God, which they didn't, then God withdrew his part, which was to bless them. And in fact, he said, you're going to be cursed if you turn against me and go after foreign gods and idols and so on. But I want you to see, guys, that only God... This, This is so important, I'm really shocked that a lot of Christians and pastors and so on don't key in on this. It's that important, and it's that obvious. Only God passed through those animal parts while Abram slept, which meant that Abram and his descendants didn't have, listen, any terms to fulfill, they didn't have any promises to keep, It was a promise that God basically made with himself to give the land of Canaan to the Jewish people without any conditions or terms. And as such, the covenant couldn't be voided, annulled, or broken because of unfaithfulness on the part of Abraham or his descendants because it wasn't a bilateral or two-party contract. It was a unilateral one and therefore unconditional. Unconditional. Well, they forfeited the promise God made with Abraham because they were not faithful. They were not required. I'm not, saying, I'm not praising them for their unfaithfulness. I'm just saying they, their faithfulness was never an issue in the covenant God made with Abraham and by extension the Jewish people. One author put it well when he said, and I quote, this was an unconditional unilateral covenant. God with astonishing condescension was symbolizing that that if he were to break his word, he would be sundered, in other words, cut in two, like the butchered animals. It was an acted out curse, a divine self imprecation guaranteeing that Abraham's descendants would get the land or God would die and God cannot die, end quote. Or as another author said, this covenant God signed alone. Abraham did not haggle with God over the terms God established and Abraham accepted. Abram could not break a contract that he never signed, end quote. We're done. Let me just finish with this. We'll set this up for next time. And we are going to be next week. I've been gone too long. Usually we take the Wednesday before Thanksgiving off. I'll be here. Okay? <laughs> but why, guys? Why is it so important that we study and understand a covenant that God made with a man over 4,000 years ago and half a world away. I mean, what possible relevance does any of this have to our lives as Christians today? Well, the New Testament tells us in Hebrews 6, Galatians 3, and other places that the new covenant is connected with the covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants. Galatians 3.29, no doubt we'll touch on this on Sunday, eventually, in our study in Galatians. But Paul said in Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ, you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, the covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants. So by our faith in Jesus, we are now spiritual descendants of Abraham and heirs, of the promise God gave to him and his children. The ultimate land, quote-unquote, God promised to all Abraham's children, all those who would believe in the promises of God, and we know would eventually receive Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. The ultimate land that God promised to all Abraham's children is the land of heaven, the land of heaven. The ultimate promised land. Now, that doesn't negate the reality of a literal land and Israel and beyond. During the millennial kingdom, Israel will finally inherit every piece, every square inch of land that God promised them originally, but they never they never enjoyed, they never conquered, they never enjoyed all of it. What they have today is a tiny little sliver compared to what God promised them. During the millennial kingdom, they're going to possess all the land that God promised them, listen, roughly three hundred thousand square miles what they have today came and come close the important thing for us as christians to understand and i'll close with this is that just as the covenant god made with abram was listen unilateral and therefore unconditional so was the covenant that he made with us through jesus christ it's called the new covenant also called the everlasting covenant how could god call it the everlasting covenant because we had no part in it a covenant based on my faithfulness could never be called an everlasting covenant. The bilateral covenant God made with Moses and the children of Israel from the top of Mount Sinai, right? Do you want to be my people? I'd love to be your God. If you do, you're going to have to obey me. Yes, Lord, we want to be your people. All right, Moses, get up on top of the mountain. I'll give you the terms of the covenant. Before he's even down from the mountaintop, they had broken the first and greatest commandment you shall have no other gods before me. They're worshiping the golden calf. He hadn't even gotten down the top of the mountain. They've already broke the covenant. That's how faithful we are. So what did God do? He took it out of our hands completely. It was never in our hands, but you understand what I'm saying. Jesus died in that cross. His blood was spilled. It was a blood covenant, but of one, unilateral. All depended on his faithfulness. had nothing to do with me. Or you. This is the covenant that God made with us through Jesus Christ. Am I saying that because we're saved by grace and we've entered into an everlasting covenant based on his faithfulness doesn't mean I don't have to worry about sin I can live a sinful life because I'm saved by grace? No not at all because if you really understand that and you're truly a child of God you're going to love God so much you're not going to want to sin. Anyone who says oh let's sin that grace may abound doesn't know God. Doesn't know God. Guys, if the new covenant listen, was a bilateral covenant dependent upon God to keep his part, which means give us eternal life, if we kept our part of the covenant to keep the law perfectly, none of us could ever be saved. I'll end with two scriptures. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, I love this, and that not of yourselves. Because it's unilateral. This covenant has nothing to do with you or I. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Salvation is a gift of God, not the result of your works, lest any should boast. And, as we're going to come to in Romans 4, I'll read to you verse 16. Therefore, it is of faith, the promise of eternal life, it is a faith that it might be according to grace, which means a gift, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Look, if our salvation was based on our performance, well, some perform better than others. Some athletes perform better than others. We have Olympic athletes and then we have weekend warriors put on a uniform and play softball or whatever they do. You know, they're athletes, but give me a break. Uh, Okay? In life, there are some people who are more than others. They run their race faster. They jump farther. They live a better life than a guy like May would. But if performance, if our salvation was based on our performance, God couldn't promise us that we would all get to heaven someday. Best he could say was, what. do your best, try hard, and we'll see. Wow, that wouldn't give me any perfect love cast out fear. I'd be a nervous wreck. Cause that's not perfect love. That, that yeah. But if God said to get to heaven, all you got to do is believe in my Son. He did the work. He paid the price. Look, anybody can believe. Anybody can believe. Anyone can come to faith in Christ if their heart's right. They mean it. God gave us a covenant whereby his promise of eternal life could be certain to all who are called. They just have to believe. We'll leave it at at that, and God willing, we'll come back next Wednesday and pick up Romans 3. Father, we thank you for this incredible book. I mean, we're just scratching the surface, Lord. We could spend the rest of our lives and beyond, and maybe we will, beyond spend it in heaven Uh, where you're going to teach the Bible study. Wow, can't wait for that. Uh, But Lord, thank you for your incredible grace. Thank you for the truths that you are unveiling to our hearts through this book. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.